Hello and welcome to the Dallas Soccer Show. I'm Dustin Nation. And in this episode, we're going to shake it up a little bit from the regular FC Dallas coverage and take a step back in preparation for us watching a lot of MLS on TV because you can't watch in person. There's so much that goes into a game of soccer, and I always wanted to get better at understanding what I'm watching. So I asked Phoenix Rising Tactics writer, MLS Assist podcast co-host, and U.S. Men's National Team Twitter video maker Joseph Lowry to come and talk to us about how to watch the MLS is back tournament and soccer in general with an eye towards tactics and strategies teams employ throughout the game. I had so much fun talking to Joseph and I learned a ton from him and I'm sure you will too. Hey, welcome to the show, Joe. Thank you so much, Dustin. It's great to be here. Yeah, uh, we kind of got a big topic ahead of us here. It's <laughs> uh, a tall task, um, but let's just, before we get into that, let's start with a little bit about you um, and where where uh, you got started in all this. Like you, You're on the MLS Assist podcast talking about tactics. That's right. So Jordan Angel and I started a podcast in conjunction with the Total Soccer Show, and by conjunction, I mean they helped us do absolutely everything, and it would not exist without them. So Daryl, Taylor, Jordan, and I started this thing uh, with a little assist from Bobby Warshaw. And so now we, Jordan and I have a show where we talk about tactics and MLS. So it was basically the worst possible time to start a soccer tactics podcast, in American, in American soccer at least. But we didn't know that back when we started in January or February. We thought we were going to have a normal season. And then we end up having four months or however long it's been, four, 40 years, it doesn't, I don't know, <laughs> of, of no soccer. And now we're finally coming out the other side. And I know Jordan and I are both very excited about that. Yeah, that is not great timing. But <laughs> you know what? We're about to have a ton of soccer to look at and talk about. Uh, and that's kind of why I wanted to talk to you because um, there's there's a lot of dynamics going to be, they're going to be playing out in Orlando if we have Orlando. Um and there's going to be a lot of soccer on, and we're going to be, and we're all going to be watching it on TV now. There's going to be nobody in the stands. Um, and one of the areas that I've always been interested in is kind of like the cat and mouse game that's going on in the game and like the, the tactics and, you know, more than just the flashy flashes of brilliance and the, the individual efforts, but like the, the team effort of the game. And so like, I wanted to kind of pick your brain on how, how we go about, watching this tournament and, and soccer in general, right? Absolutely. I think it's a good, it's a topic that I'm passionate. It's a topic that I'm passionate about. Um, so I love it for that reason. But I also think the point you made there, we're all going to be watching these games. We're not in the stands. The atmosphere of being at a game is different and it makes watching the game in a more of an analytical perspective or from that perspective, a little more challenging. And so this is a weirdly, strangely perfect time to talk about this stuff because it's going to be an experience shared by all of us as we watch these games. Yeah, so long as they don't just keep showing close-ups during, <laughs> while the ball's in play. I, I was watching, was it, the, it was the Bundesliga, and Fox Sports just, they are in love with those in-ball, mm-hmm. in-play close-ups, and it just, <laughs> I just had to turn it off. It's hard. I think that's uh, a camera technique better suited for literally any other sport um, except soccer, or at least a lot of other American sports. But yeah, it, it does make it a little challenging to to focus on what's happening on the overall game rather than just one player in those kind of moments. <laughs> yeah. So let's let's start. Um, le- okay, let's start at the beginning of the game, right? So so the one team gets the ball, right? Right. And they've got the ball. Um, how do we start analyzing the tactics that they start to use um, when they have the ball? So I love the time frame here. So just it helps me think about it in my head and hopefully you and listeners as well. The one team gets kickoff, right? Most of the time they're going to pass it back and then have possession in their desired possession setup. So usually when something like this happens in the game, I'm looking for a couple things. I'm looking at how the offensive team is spaced out. Which players are where? What kind of formation are they in? That's the most basic part of this, right? You can look at that moment and say, okay, this team is playing a 4-3-3 or they're playing a 3-4-3 or whatever it is in those basic formations. And that's the first step. I think that really helps look at how they're set up and how they want to approach having possession of the ball. That's one of the main phases of play 
in a game of soccer is what a team does when they have the ball. And at the same time, you look at the defensive team as well, right? There There are two things happening, at least two things happening in a game at any given time, right? One of them is a team with the ball and one of them is a team without the ball. Those, one of those two things, or the, both of those things, really are always true. So in that moment of the possession team, you can also look at the defensive team and see how they're structured. So the kickoff just happened. Almost certainly they're going to press forward, right? The defensive team's going to press into the opposing half. They might drop off, but most likely they're going to press forward. And then you can do a double dose, right? You can look at the possession team and see how they're structured and look at the defensive team and see how they're structured. So that's kind of where my mind goes to get some basic data points to actually start watching the rest of this game. Yeah, I guess the kickoff is like the the purest fo- uh, moment of the game where yeah. there's not any external influences on what's how the team wants to set up and where they stand, right? <laughs> exactly. And I I will caution us all really at that point because it can be easy to take what you see in those first few seconds as gospel almost, but Things do change. Sometimes coaches will send out uh, something different at the start of the game and then revert into what they actually want to do a few minutes later. Sometimes players will make runs and and press in ways that they wouldn't just because it's the start of the game and there's energy and there's all all of these things going on that maybe later in the game wouldn't happen. So honestly, it gives you a good reference point at the start, but keep an eye on things changing in the first 15 minutes or so. And then once the rhythm of the game is really established, then at that point you can sort of say, okay, this is really how these teams are going. But the kickoff is the first the first starting point of that. Yeah, and, and it changes throughout the, the match, right? There's there's the concept of game state where, like, uh, depending upon what the what's happening at any given moment they may decide to change tactics completely absolutely and and that 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 switching is like i want to get into that later but like let's start um let's start with with moving the ball forward so they've got the ball they kick it backwards and then they got to get the ball from their own side into the opponent's side what are you looking for in that transition from the defensive end to the offensive end? I think in that transition between the defensive half and the attacking half, you can see a lot in how teams do that. There's there's pretty much two basic ways to do that, um, although teams will obviously have their own individual styles, but one of them is more patient, right? It's, to use MLS as an example, we'll go with FC Dallas, right? They want to have the ball, they want to move it around and draw the opposing team forward and then play quickly in behinds. But the, the first key point there is patience with the ball. And then there's sort of the Red Bull approach, right? And we see this in Red Bull teams in Europe, especially a little bit less now with Chris Armas in New York. But still, that's a huge part of how the Red Bulls play here in the U.S. They want to go forward quickly. They're not here to play with patient possession. They are here to get the ball forward aggressively into the attacking half. Whether or not the ball gets there cleanly does not matter to the Red Bulls. They want to get the ball there and then win the second ball if they lose the first time. So it literally could not matter less to the Red Bulls how the ball gets there, just that it gets there quickly. So those you have those two almost diametrically opposed styles. One is the keep possession, draw the opposing team forward, and then we'll, we'll break when we have a perfect opportunity to do so and not before that. And then the other style is we actually do not care just get the ball up the field quickly and we'll worry about it when that happens. Yeah, it's uh it's something that that we hear at FC Dallas quite a bit with like we got to make make it pat like patiently make it past the next line, right? Mm-hmm. And and you don't want to just have possession for the sake of possession, but the other team can't score when they have the possession. So it's a slippery slope with the possession scheme right and this is something that I know we've seen with Dallas especially last season under Lucha Gonzalez is and he he has told me this and he will tell you this I'm sure it's they struggled to generate chances in the final third sometimes because they had the ball and they they struggled to have that final movement in the attack that would allow them to break through that last defensive line sometimes when you have the ball and your team is is situated around having the ball it can become possession for possession's sake and that's the classic concept that Pep Guardiola has railed against over his time coaching in Europe with Barcelona and Man City and Bayern Munich. It's it's the constant battle for teams like that to avoid just having the ball for the sake of having it. Because there's something to be said, like you said, Dustin, for having the ball. The other team can't score when they don't have the ball. So that's that's kind of soccer 101. That's a basic principle of the game. But sometimes if you're too into having the ball, you're not going to score either. And that doesn't really accomplish what you want to do at the same time. So breaking those lines, as you mentioned there, getting through one line of pressure at a time is a really important scheme that 
is a really important idea, rather, that teams who want to keep possession cannot afford to overlook. So, so as you're moving the ball forward, like what what happens? We just talked about how sometimes you you got to try to make it past the next line, but sometimes the defense has has set up and is is in a good position to keep you from being able to extend your pressure further into their uh, area. What are some of the the things you look for for how teams deal with not being able to penetrate into the opponent's uh, danger area? That matchup, so let's picture it in our heads, right? So we've got one team on the ball in the final third, let's say, and the other team is defending in a in a really low block. It doesn't matter what shape of the block is, but in a really low 4-4-2 block for the sake of the example. And they're sitting with all 10 outfield players right at the edge of their box or right inside their box, and it just looks impossible for the other team to get through, right? It's brutal. It's just pass, pass, pass. Nothing's happening. This is something, honestly, that we saw a lot with Phoenix Rising this past year in USL under Rick Schantz. They want to keep the ball like FC Dallas, like LAFC in the United States as those sort of examples in MLS. They want to keep the ball. And when you want the ball, what a lot of teams will say is, okay, you can have it. We're going to sit really close to our goal and make it absolutely miserable for you to try to break through. It's hard. There's little space. Teams are back defending with everything they have. So to get back to your question, that we sort of set the scene, it's really difficult. A couple things that I look for, number one, is ball movement horizontally, right? So in order to get the opposing block to shift, Usually these defensive blocks are going to be narrow because they want you to move to the wings. But when they when they want you to move to the wings, they also have to shift over to close you down because they don't want to give away a free cross even on the outside of the field. Yes, protecting the middle is most important, but they, they aren't going to just let, the, let you sit there and do something with the ball in a dangerous area, even if it's not in the middle of the field. So if one team, if the offensive team moves the ball to the side of the field, the defensive block has to shift at least somewhat. Then if the offensive team moves it back to the other side or back to the middle, the ball moves faster than the players, right? The ball is always going to move faster than the defensive block. So if you're moving the ball quickly from side to side, eventually, because players are moving and they're not of one mind, there's going to be a gap somewhere. The gap might be small. It might be really, really small. But the best teams know how to move the ball side to side. And then this is the second principle that I'm looking for here is verticality. First is horizontal movement. And the second one is vertical movement. That's the important key. After you've done the horizontal side to side, pull the defensive block out of position, make them move, force them to move. Then you got to see the gap and take advantage of the gap, usually with some clever runs forward from the forward line or from a midfielder back a little bit further in the final third. And then play the ball in, and that's when you can really create something because you're in behind the defense. Maybe it's a low driven cross across the box. Maybe it's just a straight up shot. But at that point, once you've moved the ball horizontally and vertically, even in that compressed space, then you're really cooking in the final third. Yeah. It, it, the Just thinking about the horizontal movement, I guess that'd be where like a, a center defender or a center midfielder would sit kind of around midfield and kind of be a pivot point. Absolutely. Where you just kind of do the back pass and then whoop, go to the other side. And that's what we see, um, to use another MLS example, that's what we see like Alexander Ring for NYCFC as a central defensive midfielder, or I keep going back to LAFC, and that's why I looked for another team there. But LAFC is the easiest example of this. Eduardo Atuesta will sit and sort of move the ball back and forth as that pivot. That's exactly the great phrase, because it helps you see it in your mind, right? The pivot is just swinging back and forth. The ball is moving through the pivot as it moves from one side of the field to the other. And that so often is the central defensive midfielder's job in a, in a team that wants to keep possession and break through a low block. Yeah, and I think the other way, like just thinking out loud here, the other way you can make, uh, you can actually make inroads is to concede space and and move the ball back vertically against your own side, right? Mm-hmm. And which would stretch the defense out and and break up that little block, and then you go vertically down the field that way. Um, I'm trying to like. I guess switch maybe switch to a bunk uh, counterattack type thing. Uh, I was just thinking about like uh, just watching the most recent Liverpool game um, where they were having trouble, and then they just you know instead of trying to push, 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 they just sat back and um, let the game come to them, which opened it up vertically. One hundred percent, right? It's. Space is the most important thing on the field, right? And that's true in basketball. That's true in soccer. That's true in like any sport that has the same objective of get the ball in the hoop or in the goal. It's the same idea, right? And so you want 
space. And a great way to get that space is by drawing the other team forward. You turn the tables on them, essentially. You let them come forward, and then once the other team has the ball and they're moving forward into your half, then where's the space? Well, the space is in the opposing half now that you're trying to get to. It's behind the attacking team, and you win the ball, and you have runners moving quickly into that space. Your forwards are moving off the ball to get forward. You play a through ball behind the back line, or you play a long ball over the top of the defense, and you're in, right? In a lot of ways, that's much easier than breaking down a really, really low, tight, low block, right? So that's why we see teams like, you know, Jose Mourinho classically do that. That's why we see teams in MLS do that. Like Minnesota United is a great example. Nashville, another great example of teams that want to play against the ball, essentially. Mm-hmm. They want to be the team that's sitting deep instead of being the team that's playing against the team that's sitting deep. They want, they want the other team to have the ball, to sucker them in, and then to say, we're not going to move. We're just going to sit here and win the ball and win it. And then they want to go lightning fast and score in transition because that's where the space is. Yeah, I think in, in Dallas here, we got used to doing that under Oscar Pereja and then having Michael Barrios be just flying down. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that's still something that Luigi Gonzalez can use, right? That's mm-hmm. the nice thing is a lot of those players in Dallas still have that understanding. And, and almost every soccer player, if not every soccer player in MLS especially, will understand how to adjust into a system like that. Um, but yeah, Barrios is, is a phenomenal example of that. And it's impressive to me, just as an aside, how he's adapted to play in more of a possession style under Luigi Gonzalez, because he's been really effective in that as well, even though it doesn't always allow him to use his speed like he was able to under Pereja. Yeah, it's been definitely interesting to watch. I think thinking more about this, I think we're kind of conditioned to kind of just focus on the ball and focus on on the player's doing something magical on the ball. But I think for me, the the magic happens off the ball and the, the things that are going on with the players who don't have the ball um, while the, their team is in possession. What do you look at when you're looking for off the ball movement for players? I love using Berhalter's national team as an example when I think about kind of off ball movement because that's something that he has worked on a lot with the United States men's national team. So when when someone's in possession of the ball, you're absolutely right. There's so much happening off the ball. So we've got players rotating in and out of space. We've got players making runs in behind the opposing back line. Just to give a specific example, with the U.S. national team, so often, especially with Christian Pulisic, wherever he's playing on the field, he will sort of cue rotations for the player on his side. So if Pulisic's playing as a left winger, he and the left-sided central midfielder will rotate on the ball so that Pulisic might be able to come inside and receive a pass from a teammate. So Pulisic doesn't even have the ball yet at this point, but he is near the ball, and he's going to be a key part of the play, even though possession hasn't yet reached him. So looking and seeing how players rotate off the ball can sort of help you understand how a team wants to attack. Because in that moment, even though Pulisic isn't in possession, we know that he's a key player for the United States. We know that his coach, Greg Berhalter, is going to do something to put him in dangerous positions to get on the ball. And that something might be an off-ball rotation that moves him from outside to inside to receive possession and then dribble forward into the attacking half. So that's why sort of those off-ball movements or off-ball runs or whatever is happening against again, away from the ball is so important. And if you're just looking at the ball, which is a natural tendency and something that I still find myself doing all the time, even when I'm not trying to watch the game in that way, right? It's it's natural. It's hard to look away from the ball. You have to actively be forcing even yourself the, to not do that. Even the defenders have a hard time with that sometimes. Oh, my word. I remember the goal in, in that 3-3 LAFC Philly draw from earlier in the season, which I think was the last game before everything happened. Um and one of the union's goals, I think there were six or seven LAFC players. This is the best team in Major League Soccer. Six or seven LAFC players looking at the ball that allowed, I think it was Brendan Aronson to score in that match. So yeah, people at home, and including myself, I'm preaching to myself here, don't feel bad if you're caught looking at the ball and you miss something that happens tactically because, yeah, even the players are doing it too. <laughs> what what else are we missing for for offense, right? We've talked about formation, some stylistic things, some off the ball movement. We've talked about ways to move the ball and be be dangerous. Are we what are we missing anything maybe in the final third um that that's interesting that you, that you look for? I think the final third is a 
is an area that we have talked about, which is good. The only other thing there to apply something else we've talked about with those off-ball rotations, I didn't mention it when we talked about it, but sometimes rotating in the final third off the ball is a great way to create those gaps. So think about it as if you're a defender, right? So you're defending in your line of four. Actually, let's say midfielder. You're a midfielder in your line of four, right? And you're defending in a zonal system, which essentially is that you're responsible for a specific area of the field and for tracking a player within that area of the field at any given time. So you're back defending near your own box, right? And and a player's in your zone. And you're aware of him, you see him, you might step to him a little bit, right? But then he starts to rotate out of your zone. And in your natural inclination, just like we're inclined to watch the ball, we're also inclined to defend a man, right? So as that player rotates away, maybe it's a central midfielder for the opposing team and you're a central defensive midfielder for the defensive team. You're going to step over to that spot, right? You're going to step with that midfielder ever so slightly out of your defensive position. In that moment, a gap is created, right? If, mm-hmm. if your teammates don't immediately move with you to help cover your space, as you step even so slightly out of position, if another runner moves into that spot from the offensive team, the space you just vacated, that's another great way for possession teams to break in in the final third. It's so small, and the margins are really, really small, which is why we don't see 10 goals in a soccer game, right? The margins are so small with those movements, but that's another way besides the overtly horizontal and then vertical ball movement. Those slight off-ball movements or off-ball rotations is another great way for a possession team to break through. Yeah, it, it's a game of steps and yeah. half steps. Yeah, and and, and even smaller. Maybe, <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't know what a what is, yeah, quarter steps. Yeah, I mean, like we're gonna just keep going and going. Yeah, it's fractions. It's it's insane. <laughs> it is. I mean, <laughs> soccer's hard, right? Like soccer's really, really, really hard, and the margins are so small. Some tiny action or or inaction can have such a tremendous effect on everything else that happens after that. I mean, you can you can kind of make your brain explode if you try to follow it down to that level. And I, I also just sort of, again, as an aside, I can't decide if we make soccer too complicated or if soccer is complicated and we don't understand it well enough. But it's it is sort of it's very simple in a lot of ways. You want to score goals and you want to move the defenders out of the way so you can score goals. Right. The ideas are simple, but sometimes the mechanics of how those things actually happen are really small and really detailed. Yeah, I think it's to to answer your question, I think it's probably both. Yeah, you're probably I think we right probably do overcomplicate it. And I think it is do really got more complicated than just scoring goals. You're a wise man. Uh, centrist is <laughs> <laughs> um, cool. So, so let's switch. Let's flip the field here. Let's do it. Um, and we talked about, you know, the offensive um, part of putting pressure on the zone and, and a team absorbing that pressure. Let's talk about the defensive side of that. What When a team is, is absorbing the pressure from an offensive team, uh, what – what are you looking at in that defensive squad to, to, to know if they're doing a good job or what kind of tactics they're using in that? So when we were looking at the offensive side, right, we were talking about how to break through that low block in the final third, right? So now if we're putting ourselves in the defensive team's shoes instead of the offensive team's shoes, what's our goal? Our responsibility in that moment as a defensive unit is to not allow – those penetrating passes in behind in behind you, right, towards your goal, and to not allow shots, essentially. So to do that, you want to make you want to make it as difficult as possible for the opposing team to break through you in dangerous areas. Most often that's going to be the middle of the field, right? You don't want to allow someone to walk right through you, right? I mean, that's a thing we see in American football, right? You don't want to allow someone to go right up the gut, whether they're running the ball or passing the ball. It's the same thing here, right? You want to make it difficult for the team to break through in the areas that they want to break through. And so when I'm watching a team and evaluating how well they do that, I'm trying to see how do they protect, especially the middle of the field? How do they rotate together? How do they move as a group, right? Because it's not just one person. It's not 1v1 defending in the middle of the field. It's the entire team working together to block off those angles to get into the box for the offensive team. So when, when the opposing team is moving the ball from side to side, using that horizontal ball movement that we talked before, with the express intent of trying to open up gaps, in the defensive side, the question is at that point, 
how does the defensive team move to stop that? They should be moving together, moving as a unit. When one person steps out, the other defenders or the other midfielders move together to cover that space. They need to be coordinated in how they move and not allow too many big gaps. And that's something, to use another MLS example, earlier in the season in their two games, the Portland Timbers did not do a good job of this at all, and they had to pay for it multiple times in the early going of this season. They did not have their defensive block very solidified, and that allowed a lot of gaps that teams could just pass through. And when you're a team that plays against the ball, often like the Timbers do, and they want to get the ball and counterattack, you can't get the ball if you're not stopping the opposing team, right? So small gaps in your defensive block, moving as a unit, shifting side to side cohesively while still blocking off the middle. Those are the important things, at least to me, when I'm watching how a defensive block tries to stop the offensive team. Yeah, I would assume that it's all about trying to to force yeah. – Growing up playing sports, it's always about making the other team go to some place where it's harder than for them to score, right? Yeah. Uh, and you know, I assume that you're you're watching for them to clog clog the middle to force them to go to the outside, or yeah, I mean, it, it, the other team just logically is going to be less dangerous the further away they are to your goal, right, or from your goal. So if you force them to the corner flag. That's much less of a risk defensively than it is when they're on the end line in your, on the end line in your box, just because they're closer to your goal and it's easier for them to make that final pass to get a shot. So most teams, if not all teams in the final third, are trying to funnel the ball away from the middle of the field towards the wings and then trap the ball there and counterattack or, or something like that once they're able to actually win the ball. Mm-hmm. Yeah, try to make them make, make a mistake over there where you can capitalize. And, and it's it's yeah. sort of a double-edged sword in that regard, though, because think about it as a defensive team, right? So what's the goal of defending besides just not allowing the other team to get a shot, right? The goal is to get the ball back in a lot of ways because you can't score. Again, like we said before, Dustin, you can't score if you don't have the ball. So the goal is two-part for the defensive team. Not allow attacking chances for the offensive team and then get the ball and attack and get chances of your own. When you win the ball in the very edges of the field, it's a further distance to your own goal to go and score rather on the opposing goal, not your own goal, but to go and score in the opposite end of the field. So sort of now what we're seeing is a lot of teams when they're high pressing, not when they're back on their own block, but either in a middle block or higher up the field defensively, they'll try to sometimes at least win the ball in the middle of the field. That way they have more of a straight line to get to goal rather than winning the ball on the edges and then having to drive down and play a probably a low percentage cross into the box. The odds of scoring from that situation are much lower than winning the ball in the middle channel of the field and just going straight at goal. So it's sort of a catch-22, right? Do you, do you win the ball in the middle of the field and risk, risk the chances of someone breaking through when you try to win it and then having a better chance on their own? Or do you simply just play the way everybody's played for a long time and just try to force the ball to the wings, win it there, and make life more difficult for yourself once you win the ball? So it's, it's an interesting question. We're seeing coaches ask themselves, where would I rather win the ball? Is it worth the risk to try to funnel the ball into the middle and then win it there and go forward, expecting benefit later on? Or do I just want to not risk it and force the ball wide? So I don't know. That's another sort of tangential thing to what we were talking about. It's sort of related, but mostly, to be honest, I just wanted to talk about it. I'm glad you did. <laughs> uh, so just, I mean, my, my simple mind is just trying, let me, trying to uh, comprehend this and make sure that I'm understanding properly. Uh, so would it be fair to say that if you are trying, if you're trying one of these tactics, that sure. you're going to try and, if, if the opponent has the ball in their own zone and is trying to move it down the wing, you would probably want to try to cut off the passes down the wing so that they are forced to go and pass the ball into the middle of the field around the, the center circle. Mm-hmm. And then you would want to have more of your players there than the, their players in order to try to force a turnover. And just to go back to how you led with that, I'm also, it, it's hard to have these discussions over audio, right? I, I'd right. like to have a whiteboard, <laughs> right? A whiteboard and someone smarter than me to explain these things or to talk about these things with you. So yeah, just as you're trying to get what I'm saying, it's, it goes both ways. So we both have simple minds here and we're working together to figure this out. The goal, I think the key point of what you said there is you want to have more players near the ball, right? Mm-hmm. Whether, you're offensive, whether you're the offensive team or the defensive team, having that advantage with players around the ball is going to give you a higher likelihood of, number one, if you're the offensive team, breaking through the defensive team. If you have five players to their three players, as an example, 
That's monkey in the middle, right? That's a rondo. That's you moving the ball around those three players and moving the ball forward, right? Life's good at that point. And if you're the defensive team with a 5v3 in that situation, you're happy too because you've probably trapped the ball and you're going to win it eventually. So whether a team is trying to win the ball specifically on the wings, as most teams do, or they're being adventurous and trying to win the ball in the center circle or a little higher up the field in the middle channel, the goal is the same. The goal is get numbers around the ball to win it. Mm or if you're the offensive team, to break through the defensive team. So that's another thing to look at how teams how teams defend, how they attack, is where do they assign numbers? Where do they have players moving to the ball, and what spaces do they have advantages? That's a great thing to look for off the ball as well. We talked about rotations, mm-hmm. but maybe look at how around the ball, how the how the players are positioned, right? Does the offensive team has an, have an advantage in that situation? Does the defensive team have them covered and more so in that situation? That can give you a real clue as to how, how that situation is going to turn out. Is the offensive team going to break through? Is the defensive team going to stop them? You might be able to cheat and figure that out before that even happens. Oh, no, that's, that's a good point. What, what, about, what about pressing? We talked a little bit about pressing. We, the, obviously the goal there is to win the ball back in a more dangerous area um, and do what you just said of Joe, of, of, you know, getting the ball back with, with uh, the, the point is to get the ball back. Right. So what, what do you, how do you judge a press when you're looking at it? Like how do you judge the, figure out what the tactic is and judge whether or not it's a good press or not. So, I think the keys to a good press are actually the same keys to really defending effectively in any area of the field. Most often we think of pressing as high pressing, right? With that right. definition, the perfect definition that you gave of pressing right off the bat of of winning the ball in a dangerous area, right? That's mm-hmm. the idea. And so the principles, though, I would say are the same. The biggest thing is you want to be compact. That's number one, right? So defensively in the in the final third, when you're back defending your own goal, when the other team's in possession in your box or near your box the goal like i was talking about earlier i didn't use this word but i should have is to be compact right you don't want to allow those gaps between your players to let the other team score the idea is the same on the opposite end of the field when you're high pressing if your forwards let's say are the only two people pressing let's say you're, you're pressing in a 4-4-2 you're defending in a 4-4-2 your two forwards are the only two players pressing against their entire back line in midfield right in the rest of your players are back in your own half you're not going to press successfully, right? Because number one, to use that numerical advantage concept you talked about earlier, just a second ago, the other team is probably going to have six or seven players to your two, right? Just two guys are pressing against a whole heck of a lot of other players. You're realistically never going to win the ball, right? So the yeah, key there... You're tired. Exactly. You're going to be tired. You're going to run until you can't run anymore, right? <laughs> Nothing's going to happen that you want to happen as a defensive team in that situation. That's an extreme example in terms of like the opposite of compactness, being really spread out. But the idea there is good, right? So imagine on a slightly less hyperbolic scale, the, the midfielders and the defenders are pressing forward too with those two forwards, right? But even those small gaps between lines, that's what the FC Dallas is. That's what the LAFCs want to exploit, the NYCFCs. That's what those teams want to do. They want to break through that first line of pressure, turn, and then have time and space to play forward. But if your press is compact in a narrow way and your forward, the distance between your forwards and your back line is very small, or is at least somewhat small, then there's going to be less space for the pressing for the, the team that's not pressing, the team in possession. There's going to be less space between your defensive lines, which in turn is going to make it more difficult for the offensive team to break through those lines and advance into your half. So that compactness combined with you know intensity and aggression and knowing where you want to funnel the ball. Do you want to push it wide? Do you want to bring it into the middle and trap there? But the basic principle there is you have to be compact. Otherwise, you're going to leave space, which like we talked about earlier, Dustin, that's what these offensive teams want. That's really what they're looking for. And if you leave it open for them, they're probably going to find it. Well, I asked this question uh, about the offensive zone uh, or offensive side of tactics. What what haven't we covered on defense? Like, is there something that the, these are the questions that I I am curious about? But what is am I missing anything? What what things do we normally not think about? when we're looking at the defensive side of tactics that we should be aware of or that, that you like to highlight? So there are just a, a few quick hitters here that I've got off the top of my head, honestly. So the right. first one is 
is where does the team set their line of confrontation? So line of confrontation is just a big fancy way, essentially. And I, I don't honestly don't know why people started calling it this, but it does make sense if you think about it. It's probably a military thing. Probably. But it's where you engage the offensive team, right? So defensively, we can think about this again in a pressing context, right? You're playing without the ball. You're defending. And the other team has the ball. Your line of confrontation is where essentially the top of your defensive shape is. So most often that's going to be the forwards, right? That's going to be where do they set up and say, okay, this is the line that if you cross it, we're going to press you, right? Mm -hmm. This is when we start engaging you and when we start making life difficult for you. So lines of confrontation can give you a real clue about how the team wants to play. If someone's line of confrontation is really low, let's say it's a team that wants to sit back, counter, right? Bunker and counter, right? That's team that's going to have a really low line of confrontation. They're happy to let you move the ball around in your own half. They don't care. All they care is that when you start getting into their own half or into the final third, that's where they're going to press you a little bit and make life difficult for you. Contrast that with a line of confrontation high up the field, right? And then you've got a high pressing team. So just sort of from that one cue of where the team starts their forward line, you can get a really good idea of how they want to defend. High up the field and press, down low on the field, sit there, let you pass the ball around. You're harmless. It's not a problem. I mean, Russia did this to Spain in the World Cup this past, or 2018. Man, time's a weird thing. But essentially... It doesn't exist anymore. It doesn't exist, right? <laughs> Russia did this to Spain in that World Cup, and, and Spain set you know a crazy number of passes. I, I think it was a World Cup record. It doesn't matter, really. But they passed the ball 900, 1,000 times, whatever the number was, and Russia was not bothered. Essentially, they did not care. They were happy to sit deep, have a really, really low line of confrontation, and then counter the ball. So that that one term of where you're engaging the defense, or the attack rather, where that line of confrontation is can give you a lot of insight to how the team wants to play. Um, and then I, I know I said a few, but I forgot the middle one, so I'm going to the last one here, is just um, how, where the defensive line is, right? It's sort of the opposite, the, almost the anti-line of confrontation. Um, you're looking at, instead of the forward line, you're looking at the back line and saying, right. is a team playing a high line? And is there space in behind for the opposing team to exploit? Are they, are they sitting back a little closer to their goal? Or are they really close to their goal? And in essence, this essentially tells you the same thing as the line of confrontation. But maybe you'll see a few different things when you look at the back line instead of the front line. You'll, you, might see, you might see runners from the opposing team trying to break beyond that line off the ball and get a long ball in from the center backs over the top, right? And you might be wondering normally, why did he just play the ball long? Like, what was the reason for that? Usually we see teams try to play more patiently out from the back and build possession more systematically, slowly through midfield. Why did he just decide, why did the central defender just decide to play it really long? If you're looking at the back line for the opposing team, you might know that, okay, they're playing really high and there's actually a lot of space in behind and that space is where the offensive team wants to get to. And so Mm -hmm. maybe that center back saw that just like you did and noticed, okay, I see my teammate making a run behind that space. I'm going to play on the ball and then we're away. So that, that sort of contrast between the line of confrontation at the top of the defensive shape and the back line and where they're positioned on the field, looking at those two things one at a time can sort of help you gauge how the defensive team wants to play and wants to approach the game and also what things the offensive, what things the offensive team might want to do to exploit what the defense is giving them. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, yeah, I just it's, – it, it's, I used this phrase earlier in the show. It's, it's – uh, it's a cat and mouse game. It is. You 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 react to what your your opponent gives you, and if they give you that high line, you you know that it's going to be harder, and they're probably more compact, and it's harder to work your way through them. Mm-hmm. And so you you just hoof it, not because you're out of options, but because it's one way to get the ball in behind the, uh, no, it makes sense. Exactly. I mean, it's all about, it's, it's all about the space and that's a perfect, like just the way you described that was absolutely perfect. Right. It really helps you visualize and get in the head of the team with the ball. Right. They're like, okay, it's going to be really, really hard, borderline impossible for us to play through this press. So then where's the space, right? These are the questions that we're asking ourselves. Where's the space? Cause there's space somewhere. You can't cover a whole soccer field with 10 outfield defenders, right? There's going to be space. It's just right. a matter of where the defensive team chooses to leave that space. And sometimes that is behind the line, behind the defensive line, rather. And that is where, where you need to exploit if you're the offensive team. Very cool. All right. Well, I think there's one more thing we haven't covered, and that's like the dead ball situations. Um, we <laughs> I know there's, there's a couple of types of dead ball situations, right? There's the throw in which oh, it's been getting some love these days. <laughs> it um, has. I think Liverpool has their own throw-in coach and they, they 
consider it just their like a free kick. Yep. And you got those those specialists that can can throw the ball eighty thousand miles. Yeah. 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 Doing the flip throws. <laughs> That's that. still like, my favorite thing. I don't think we see yeah. that enough. We actually probably shouldn't see it. I'm not sure it works well, but it's fun I'm to watch. Sure, like it's in their contract that they're for medical reasons they're not allowed <laughs> to. <do. laughs> like, you might great. break yourself doing that. Yeah, probably not the best idea. I guess. Yeah. Um, I I don't I don't. Is there anything on throw-ins that that you look for? I mean, I know that we we could probably get into some super minutia there. <laughs> Um, is it just considered, do you consider it like another free kick? I mean, in a way, yeah, right? I mean, all the dead ball situations. So you've got throw-ins, you've got free kicks. Those are the two most uh, regular ones, right? Corner kicks as well, I guess, right? And then kickoffs, I guess, and penalty kicks. Penalty kicks are on their own thing. Yeah, um, that's a different but, show. But that's a different show, right? <laughs> throw-ins, like those other situations, are opportunities for you to do something with no pressure, right? If we're the offensive team... You can stand there for as long as the referee wants and however patient he's feeling. You can stand on the side of the field and wait to throw the ball in, right? So you're not under pressure. You're not being hurried. You have time. And so these are really unique opportunities because in a lot of situations, especially high up the field, you're not going to have time. You're going to be pressured when the ball is in open play as opposed to when it's stopped on a set piece. So throw-ins are such a great time to do something creative. That's why they're set pieces. Like these, I think of them as plays that you can call in a huddle right? In an NFL game. I don't know why I'm doing so many cross-sport comparisons tonight, but the idea there is the same, right? It's a great time to draw something up and to actually execute a pre-planned movement. So I love looking at throw-ins. It's pretty clear sometimes just players won't move around at all, and they'll just kind of stand there and hope the ball gets to them. Those are most often the teams that aren't actually talking about throw-ins and not doing anything with them, creative at least. But teams that move around, teams that innovate, teams that have clever off-ball movements or throw the ball in long or fast or whatever it is, like Liverpool, I mean, Greg Berhalter, to bring him back up again, has talked about throw-ins before, and I, I haven't looked especially deep into that, but I know it's something that at least he's thinking about with the national team. Throw-ins, and this is the same with free kicks, the same with corner kicks, they're chances to do something innovative, and so often we see teams just not, and just throw the ball in and not really yeah. generate anything, and I think that's a wasted opportunity. No, I'd agree. It, it's, it's just... It, it's just lazy to not try and do something creative when you have the opportunity. I agree. Uh, yeah. So one of the things that I, uh, let's uh, switch over to corner kicks. You brought them up. Um, I actually learned something. Uh, I think it was like my first year doing this podcast where um, FC Dallas had been doing a ton of short kicks, short corner kicks. And I got tired of it because nothing ever came from it. And I was like, why are we doing these, these short <laughs> kicks, man? Like, why don't we kick the ball into the... And I got a lesson from Steve Davis of FC Dallas uh, broadcast team. Uh, and he's like, yeah, you... There's there's a tactical reason for doing short kicks. Um, you know, like you're, you're trying to change the point of attack when you do that. And you can... You can change it from right there on along the line, the goal line to maybe a little bit further out and get a better, more favorable attack in and way to cross the ball in uh, assuming you don't just like goof it up. It's true, right? The idea there with a short corner so often can be, okay, it's hard to generate a good attacking angle, a good, a good ball into the box from the end line, right? The angle isn't very good. You want to have ideally, especially for a shot, you want to be as close straight on to the goal as you can be. Right, And so having a short corner where you're able to maybe swing the ball closer to the middle of the field before you play it in and before you take a shot, that idea is, is somewhat logical. Right, I think so often where we see teams falter with short corners is they pass the ball in and then there's a lack of creativity after that. Right, They have the first play. Right, Okay, we know we're going to play the ball short. But then it's then like, uh, <laughs> then things happen fast. Like life's coming at you quick at that point. The team's pressing you. They're going to mm -hmm. step out from their box as a defensive team. And then you have fractions of a second to decide what to do or to execute a play if you're lucky enough to have drawn one up at that point, right? So when we see teams sort of just coming to, to short corner kicks with nothing or with very little ideas, that's when we get frustrated. And that's, I imagine, a lot of times what it seemed to like at least Dallas was doing way back when, or it probably wasn't way back when, but somewhat more recently. Yeah, it, it, it's uh, like you said, the, the defenders come fast and then the... the yeah. 
the second corner, the guy receiving the corner kick just decides to pass back up back, back to the defense. And then you're back to square one. So yeah, it's a, it's it, a tricky it, thing. The mar- the margins are fine. Sorry to interrupt you there. It's, it can be very frustrating. Um, or you can actually run like a run a really well executed a really well designed rather set piece from that corner kick that helps you break into the box and then really you're you're really cooking at that point right then you're in a dangerous area you can play a low cross across the box or you can you can take a shot whatever it is but yeah it, it's it's tough it's not easy yeah what else do you look for on corner kicks so that if we're people talking normally don't look for if we're talking more normal corner kicks right. Um, let's just use uh, a normal corner kick into the box where you cross the ball in from the corner flag into the middle of the box, right? Tracking. A lot of times it's it's easy, again, to look at the ball and just watch the corner taker and see, okay, does he hit the ball with his left foot, his right foot, whatever. He crosses the ball, you're watching the ball, it's dropping, and then either they score or they don't, right? Um, but I like to, and I think this is a really good habit and a good practice for those who are interested in more of the tactical side of the game, Watch the box, right? Forget about the corner kick taker. You want to be looking at the alignment in the box. Where are they positioned? Who's going to run another? Man, another crossboard comparison. In basketball, right, you've got those picks. And I don't know how familiar you or our listeners are with basketball, but you can set a screen, right? And similar in football, I guess, you can block, right? It's the same idea. Who's setting, who's setting screens? Who's blocking for whom in the box? It's like a mini game in there. How are the offensive team, how are there's, how are those players trying to move the defenders around either by making runs or by literally running into them and pushing them out of the way how are they going to clear the way for a ball to come in and for someone to attack the ball so looking at the alignment and the movement in the box not in the corner flag that guy is is important and if the ball's not good you know that's not ideal but even if he has a perfect ball and nothing happens in the box they're not going to score right so you've got to look at the box to see how the team's how the offensive team's players are lined up and how they're trying to move or literally force the defensive team's players out of the way. How much does um, the where the defenders set... Generally, you'll see a line mm-hmm. like of defenders horizontally across the box on one of these things. Is that set from where the the offense lines up or is that set from where the defenders line up? That line is probably predetermined. Um, so there are kind of two ways that you can defend a corner kick. Well, three ways, I guess. One is with man marking, right? And that's, it's straightforward, right? You're matched up man for man. And if you, if you lose your man, you're at risk of letting a goal in or at least letting a shot go by. The other one is zonal marking, which we kind of talked about a little bit earlier, right? The principle of you have a zone to defend. And that's usually Dustin where the line comes in. That's when you see a whole set of players lined up across the box. Their responsibility is that little strip of, of the field. And if the ball comes into that space, they're responsible for getting up there and getting it out of there. Mm. And the third option of of the third okay, way to defend sense. a corner kick is with a combination of man and zonal marking. Um, yeah, so you've got those two, those three different ideas, right? Man marking, zonal marking, and a mix of the two. And so that's sort of you, you might see a line sometimes, and you might not. It might just depend on how the defensive team's coach wants to have them set up, or what way he or she believes is the best way to defend corner kicks. Okay, so here's here's a, a question for, for Coach Lowry here. <laughs> You're setting it up. Do you put the guy that can jump the tallest on the line to clear to clear balls, or do you put him to marking the other team's guy? You probably, and I said this as someone who has exactly zero years of coaching experience, um, I would say you probably want to have that guy in the most dangerous opposing aerial threat, right? Because then you're running a risk of having you know the other team's big, tall, athletic guy against someone who's not those things um and then (laughs) then you're running a real risk of allowing him a free header in the box that takes no creativity it just takes the corner kick taker hitting the guy's forehead in in having the guy the tall guy not get into the goal right so it depends on the situation i'm sure and it definitely depends on the team as well but at a very basic fundamental level i think the idea is probably best if you're having your guy against their guy (laughs) this whole conversation is bringing up some fifa PTSD for me. <laughs> like every everything you said, I'm like, man, the FIFA AI has done completely opposite of all this <laughs> stuff. <laughs> all right. Well, uh Joe, Joseph, Mr. Lowry, uh, thank you so much for lending us your your brain and your your um just helping us understand kind of how you watch the games so that we can kind of maybe get more out of watching these games on TV. Uh, we certainly appreciate you. 
Absolutely. I had a ton of fun. It's always fun for me, even even though it's sometimes tricky to talk about the tactical things and easier to write them or to see them visually. Um, I always enjoy having these conversations. And, and Dustin, I appreciate you and your questions and, and just for you having me on. Nah, so you do do, I just said do do, <laughs> you do do some uh, visual stuff. I've seen them on Twitter. What What's your uh, Twitter handle? So you can find me on Twitter at Joe and Cleats. And yeah, I had some fun over this sort of in season, off season, I guess, making making some visual tactical stuff. Uh, so yeah, you can pretty easily go and find those things there on my Twitter. So do you write? You're a writer too, right? Do you have any uh, place you write regularly? I am. I currently that is all on a bit of hold as the economic recession has hit <laughs> pretty much everywhere in the world, but here in the U.S. is what I'm familiar with. So hopefully again soon in a few months, but but sadly not at the moment any writing. But yeah, you can you can if I have anything good or interesting or things that I think are funny, even if no one else thinks they are, um, you can find all those things in one place, and that's that's Twitter, honestly. All right, is that the best way for us to support you? Yeah, one hundred percent. Just follow you there and yeah. and read your stuff. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of dull. Like that's not that interesting of a way to support me. I wish I had something more creative. Like you can. I don't know. Send me something fun. I don't. But no. Yeah, that's it. Just follow me on Twitter. <laughs> I've got an Amazon wish list and a Patreon. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I wanted to go like not beg for money. So yes, just just Twitter support and and just you know having interesting conversations like this or over there is always great. And go check out the MLS Assist podcast. Yeah. Thanks, man. Yeah. All right. Thanks so much, Joe. Absolutely. Big thanks to Joseph Lowry for making time for us. If you're finding this podcast for the first time, A, thanks so much for listening, and B, don't forget to slap that good old subscribe button in your podcast app. You can find us online at dallassoccershow.com and on Twitter as at Dallas Soccer Show. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you soon. Yeah.